Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This week on Forward, CNN anchor and author of the new book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, John Avlon. John Avlon's on Forward this week. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the author of the tremendous book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, one of the most independent journalists that's out there, a friend of mine from CNN, John Avalon. Welcome, John. Thanks, man. Andrew, it's good to see you. As always, you and I do have kind of a mind meld on politics. I know we're going to have fun on this one. Yeah, you are maybe one of the most dyed-in-the-wool, capital-I independents that I know, where you've actually been ahead of everyone, including me on the democracy reform train. Uh, how the heck did you get there before the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I appreciate that. I don't know that I can, I can take all the credit, but, but I, 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 you know, your, your kind words, I'm not sure I deserve them, I guess what I'm saying, but I did write, uh, my first book was called Independent Nation, uh, How the Vital Center Can Change American Politics, which was published in 2004 when I was, you know, I think I just turned 30. But, um, uh, you know, it, it it always seemed common sense to me that um, when you study American history and you study the presidents, as I did and loved doing so from a young as a young child, that their parties faded away. The, 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 the party label didn't matter. What mattered were were their ability to unite and confront the challenges of the time. And that necessarily you know, in the pendulum swing of American politics, as used to be, it necessarily didn't follow the pattern of any one political party. And um, and even then, things were getting more and more extreme. You know, party polarization in Congress, you saw, really hit overdrive after 1994 with the Republican Revolution. And Bill Clinton recentered the Democrats after the Democrats lost three consecutive elections by 40 states. Bill Clinton moved the Democratic Party to the center and was able to win back the White House. And, 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 you know, it just seemed to me very obviously that if you seize the center, if you try to realign politics, if you don't focus on playing to the base, that that's where most American people are. But there's a huge disconnect between where the politicians are and where the most activist base is and, and where the heart and soul of the country is. And, and then what we saw over recent decades, this attempt, and you and I have discussed this, and, and you know, this is chapter and verse for, for you, this attempt to rig the system to perpetuate this false notion that America is ideologically polarized. And so they do it through the rigged system of redistricting and closed partisan primaries and all the things that you've been ha hammering out on to basically move power to the extremes of our politics. And so you reap what you sow. And, and so we have a politics that ends up denigrating our democracy by giving people false choices. And, and I want to be clear, right now we have asymmetric polarization. The Republican Party is far more further to the right than the Democratic Party is further to the left. So this is not a both sidersism critique, but that dynamic ends up running down our democracy by perpetuating division, dysfunction, and then a kind of cynicism that makes some people think there's no functional difference between democracy and other forms of government. Uh, although I think they've gotten a, a, a reality check, so to speak, in, in recent weeks about the fundamental differences. So you've been a student of history since way back if you were writing about the stuff in essentially your 20s. Uh, yeah. Is it somehow an accident that you ended up marrying the descendant of one of the presidents? Were you like screening when you were dating and being like, are you, 
Are you the descendant of a U.S. president? Check. <laughs> no, that would be so creepy and 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 sociopathic. And and for all my many faults, I don't think that's one of them. Uh, no, I, I think it was probably an added point of interest. Um, although it's fair to say that um, uh, I, I was not a a uh, a student of Herbert Hoover or had a a. a particularly sympathetic view of him before I met Margaret. And I learned a lot actually about what an extraordinary uh, American he was. And that's not only because I'm, I'm married to Margaret. Uh, no, that that was a, um, a happy coincidence. I think if you look at, at the qualities I was looking for at the time, rooted in her personality, having absolutely nothing to do with her last name, you, you know, you would have seen really quickly uh, that, that she is my type and in every way, shape, or form, and 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 neither and neither, by the way, uh, you know, given the fact that she was a Republican and conservative, it was actually an issue. And we we we've, we've talked about this, you know, the fact that I was an independent was a real challenge for her and her family. You know, no, there was I an assumption that. that that's interesting. yeah, you know, that there there was an assumption. I mean, party identity had sort of not supplanted the role of religion, but had an almost religious uh, quality, particularly in that family, and and somewhat honestly earned given the scar tissue they had because of the partisan fights. Although ironically, Herbert Hoover, when he was elected, described himself as an independent progressive in the Republican tradition, which I love. And I remind my father in love whenever I can. But yeah, so, so even that was a, that was, a, that was a hurdle in our, in our courtship, so to speak. Wow. Fascinating. Um, well, for those of you who don't know, John's married to Margaret Hoover, who's an awesome journalist in her own right. And both John and Margaret were some of the most generous journalists when I was running for office where they brought me on just to talk about the ideas I was running on as opposed to the usual stuff. So it was always very grateful to both you and Margaret. And uh, like having been on Margaret's program, I actually would have no inkling as to what her political uh, self-identification is, which I think is how a lot of people would, uh, you know, would like to to <laughs> yeah. interact with people. So hats off to, to both of you uh, well, thank on that. You, um, reading this book was fascinating uh, and engrossing, and it made me think, as someone who's written a book or two, this book seems extraordinarily hard to write <laughs> in, in the sense that you're like recreating <laughs> you that? historical scenes. It's like, you know, Lincoln and his son, Tad, walking through this town. I'm like, how the heck does one go about even uh, getting all the primary material to write a book like this? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, you, you write it because you love it. And it's a different pace from what you do day to day. I mean, you know, I began as a speechwriter. Then I was a, a columnist. Then I became editor in chief of the Daily Beast, which is when I met you. Uh, and, and now as an anchor and analyst, you know, writing a, a, a book, particularly a history book, is a is a different speed. It um, and, and in the case of the opening of the book, which is Lincoln's walk into Richmond, um, Days, two days after after the the capital of the Confederacy fell, holding his son Tad's hand on the boy's twelfth birthday, I actually took my son and we recreated the walk uh, up mm, from the river no. to the top of Capitol Hill. Yeah, wow. And um, and 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 you're able to get a sense of bearings. And there's a remarkable park ranger there named Michael Gorman who wrote a, a ninety page essay about Lincoln and Richmond that debunked a lot of myths and did the walk with him and learned from him and toured um, you know the Confederate White House, Jefferson Davis's capital home and where where Lincoln sat and where he met everybody on that day. So, you know, there's primary research and then sometimes there's physical research, which I love. Um, but, you know, it, it, you know, a column or reality check will take me four or five hours to write. This took me just over four years to write. But you, you want to get the music the way, right. There was a lot well, of painstaking uh, detail. And, and I just imagine you being like surrounded by uh, various documents and manuscripts. Uh, yeah. like, <laughs> I'll say I've got pictures. I mean, one point Jack is reading, my son Jack is reading a, a tiny uh, a little, little sort of kid's book on Abraham Lincoln. And then behind him are two tall stacks of books about Abraham Lincoln, you know? And, uh, oh yeah. I mean, the, 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 the research and, and the, the research is part of the fun to the extent where, I don't know if you ever, ever have this experience where, um, you think you're writing when you're doing the research and then you realize that, you know, you really don't start writing until you actually start writing. It's necessary to kind of get the ideas. You can convince your yourself uh, you're doing all sorts of things when you're uh, preparing to write, my friend. Like, That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> true, man. It's true.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Uh. So uh, you started this book years ago, um, but I have to say it seemed very, very relevant to today. And I think the thing that is stunning, was stunning to me, was that Abraham Lincoln was essentially a third party candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was kind of a nobody uh, up to that point. He's like a former one term member of Congress rattling around the Midwest. Uh, and then there is this uh, new startup party called the Republican Party that just kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And and he wins a four-way race yeah. with 39.8% of the vote. And just as someone, you know, gr- grows up in this country venerating Abraham Lincoln, like I, I was like, what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, I, I, you know, and I, I totally understand why you uh, would, would gravitate to that part. And I, I actually, originally that section was two or three times as long because I got into like the real like electoral mechanics of how the Whig Party was supposed by the Republican Party, which you're right. It's the most successful third party in American history. Um, and there's a lot to learn from it. People think that, you know, it's important to remember for folks that, you know, our constitution doesn't mention political parties. It does no. mention journalists, I like to point out, but it doesn't mention political parties. And that's because the founding fathers, which was my last book is about Washington's farewell. He was an independent as a matter of principle. Uh, the founding fathers expected that members of Congress would represent their conscience and their constituents, but not through the filter of party. Eventually, within their lifetime, they realized that was perhaps inevitable. But, you know, the, the Democrat, the Federalist Party is supplanted by the Whig Party, which then falls apart because it fails to take a stand on slavery that's distinct and clear, the defining issue of the time. Uh, then there's an anti-immigrant know-nothing party that emerges that Lincoln refuses to join, although it's the first nativist party that you know is very resonant today. And then the way the Republican Party is created and how quickly it rises, it's a big tent, moderate progressive party dedicated to opposing slavery. Some people oppose its expansion. Some people want complete abolition. Um, and it really ends up seeding the states of the fastest growing areas, the upper Midwest and, and the Northeast. And Lincoln, after losing his Senate race, but his speeches uh, against slavery were, were, and slavery's expansion were so powerful that he developed a national reputation, is sort of this young, fresh-faced compromise candidate. He's the moderate from the Midwest, and, and he has a reputation for honesty, and he's not seen as a radical. As I say, he's a, he's a reconciler in a time of radicals and reactionaries. And that rockets him up to, to lead the nation at the start of the Civil War without any executive experience and no military experience and one term in Congress. And, and he succeeds because of his character and because of his capacity to grow. And it's a reminder that, you know, the study of history, you know, shows very clearly, I think, that character is the single most important quality in a president, bar none. Most successful third party indeed. Uh, so the Republican party starts out as a Northern anti-slave party, which hmm. uh, is not the way most people think of it today. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of reversed roles in terms of dominating 100%. the South. Um, um, th- thanks to uh, the Civil Rights Act in the, the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So Lincoln becomes president and that almost immediately kicks off the Civil War in essence, mm-hmm. because there are there, there were candidates who were vying for uh, for votes in the South, neither of whom was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and then when Lincoln won with essentially 
exclusively northern support, then the South uh, decides to secede shortly thereafter, and Lincoln finds himself a wartime president with, as you described, very limited experience in that realm. Yeah, and and you know, it, it, he wins actually the, the the states in the Pacific, California, Oregon, and I believe Washington at that point. Certainly, California and Oregon, but they have, you know, they they have incredibly small populations. Uh, and and but you're right, it, it's it's the energy in the country has was in the upper Midwest and the Northeast, and that's what he wins. And he Lincoln doesn't even appear on the ballot in the Deep South. Um, and and what you see also is that the 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 planter class, the the slave owners who were pushing secession, never dared initially bring it to a popular vote in the states. They tried to do it in closed partisan uh, conventions. And then they 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 relied on the, the essentially the violence, uh, beginning with the focus on on Fort Sumter, um, that feeling they knew the feeling of resentment and revenge would create its own kind of remorseless logic. And people thought, well, we'll just have a quick war and get this over with. But of course, that's not what happened. And 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 Lincoln, who really is a man of peace in a time of war, um, is the least likely guy. But he. He studies quickly, he develops a theory of, of war, and he relies on his interpersonal absence of malice. You know, the, the defining characteristics I see, you know, he's, a, he's temperamentally a moderate man, but he combines moderation with moral courage. And I think that's something that, that you and I share and, and focus on is, is that, that's that that's the magic combination that too often is missing. Too many people look at moderates and see an absence of moral courage, and too many people with moral courage assume a sense of moral superiority. And that's not the way to persuade people. Democracy depends on persuasion. And even in the middle of a civil war, what is so extraordinary is that Lincoln still believes that there's more than unites us than divides us. He refuses to demonize people he disagreed with, yes. even when they're calling for his death. He believes that you empathize with your opponents as a means of reasoning with them. It, it, it's the politics of the golden rule. Uh, and I think it's so inspiring. Uh, and it was unusual in his time, too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but but it is it's the reason he's on a higher level than any president or any American political figure. Yeah, I, this is a quote that I feel like everyone should take to heart. There are so many Lincoln quotes uh, in this book that I was reminded of. Uh, but here's here's one that spoke to me. If you would win a man to your cause, first convince him you are his sincere friend. But mark him as one to be shamed and despised. He will retreat within himself, close all avenues to his head and his heart. And uh, I think that's totally true. Yeah, it's um, totally true. <laughs> and, 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 and it seems like like that that's a fundamental lesson that everyone just is completely ignored nowadays. Well, it, it is, and and this is something that you get grief for sometimes in a good 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 faith attempt to reach out and empathize with people and hear where they're coming from, and in in the current environment, you know th that basic quality of empathy, let's be honest, has been strained. It's difficult in, in environments, you know, where people are believing a self-evident big lie pushed by a con man who tried to overturn an election. <laughs> That's going to strain our capacity for empathy when you see people doubling down on that. But if Lincoln could continue with that spirit of empathy, even in the middle of the Civil War, when he, he would not demonize people he disagrees with in public or private. You know that that's an, that's a that's a that's a tall order. That's a t that's a big example. But but it really is incumbent upon us to try. We may miss that mark, but but it really is incumbent upon us to try because that's how we get out of this ultimately. You know, I mean, every knowledge of human nature would suggest that, and 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 all the the, the emotional reflexes in politics are, are set up the other way. But we're going to need to find a way to transcend that to reconcile again. And, and so I know that yeah, you he, understand that dynamic. Oh, he literally had people threatening his life and he would say, ah, it's okay. Like we, we'd be doing the same thing in their shoes. I, I thought that was yeah. like a, just an incredible attitude. Yeah, it, it's remarkable, especially when you see how he combines, he combines opposites and, and, and he does, you know, he personally swings between tragedy and comedy and, and, and depression and, and, this sort of you know tendency to tell jokes all the time, which is really a form of self-medication for him, but which leads other people, his contemporaries, to accuse him of being insufficiently serious. Um, you know, there's that story early in the book where, after a brutal Union defeat, um, his friend Isaac and Arnold, a congressman from Illinois, goes to visit him in the White House, and he's sitting on the second floor in front of a fireplace, and he's reading from a book of his favorite humorist, Artemis N. Ward, 
And Ward, like another of his favorites, Patron V. Nasby, play characters. I mean, it's actually a very, it's like, it, it's satire, it's first person satire in the kind of way that the original Stephen Colbert show did, um, where they're playing a character. Anyway, Arnold sees him laughing by the fireplace after this brutal union defeat, and he's furious at his friend. He says, what the hell are you doing? How can you laugh at a time like this? And then in Arnold's uh, uh, memoir, he, he describes Lincoln as throwing down the book and turning to him with tears in his eyes and saying, do you not realize that if I could not find some way to get relief that my heart would break? And that's when he realized that the laughter and the storytelling and the joking was a form of self-medication, um, which I think is profound. I mean, he bore an unbelievable burden. Uh, and w- one of the themes, maybe the predominant theme in the book, uh, is that he thought you needed to lead a hard war and then follow with a very soft piece. And the uh, for a, a man who is not naturally himself militaristic to be leading a hard war uh, just seemed like uh, an extraordinarily difficult burden to bear. What, one of the things that also blew my mind um, was the war drags on and on for four years. And then the next election is up, uh, 1864. <laughs> and people are saying to him, it's like, hey, you don't need to have this election uh, because, you know, guess what? There's a war on. Uh, and he insists on having the election, um, mm-hmm. and, but but there is a period during which he's not uh, favored to win. Oh, he's convinced he's going to lose in August before the election. He circulates a letter that he has written himself predicting his defeat, closes the envelope, seals it, has his cabinet sign it, and he, it's literally to to be witness to his own silent prediction of his defeat. And and then, of course, things change. You know, importantly, Sherman takes Atlanta, uh, which changes the tone of the war. Um, and, 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 you know. and the, during this time, the Democrats are running against him and the Democrats are like, hey, everyone, if you're tired of this war, vote us in and then we'll have peace with the South and all be well. And you have to like you have to hear that and be like, wow, that'd be a pretty compelling pitch uh you know after years and years of war so like like that i like and, and if you can imagine if he loses that race and the democrats are like hey we're oh. in like peace with the south there is no united states of america as we know oh. today everything changes you know <laughs> that's the thing i mean he believes that you know <laughs> that, that you have to win on the battlefield and in uh in the election for his vision of a magnanimous peace to work the book is about how you win a peace right the book is about Lincoln's plan to win the peace after winning the war and his vision for national reconciliation and reunification. Um, and, and, and what is so extraordinary is he comes up with this without any historic precedent, because there's never been a civil war on that scale before. He comes up with a basic formula that you indicated, unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace. And there were people in his time saying, look, we've lost three quarters of a million Americans, you know, that Let's just have peace. Let's have a ceasefire. He gets brought ceasefire offers from the Confederates on at least two occasions, and he refuses them. Easy political win, right? Yeah, no, he, he would say right. he would say the war is over and we won. Like you feel like nine out of 10 political leaders would take that. <laughs> yeah. And, and they would be wrong because what Lincoln understood was that the political will to end slavery would evaporate. Yes if there was a ceasefire before surrender, which is why he'd refuse. He said, no one man desires peace more than I, but I'm unwilling to accept a peace on such terms that would guarantee the next war. If you don't remove the root cause of the war, it's not peace, <laughs> you know? And, and so a just war must be followed by a just peace, but you need to end the fundamental underlying issue, which is slavery. Uh, and also the idea that states have a right to secede. And so that's why an unconditional surrender needed to be Proceed, needed to proceed a magnanimous peace. But even in that, there were people in his own party who want vengeance. Yeah, And he's saying, no, that's not the way we need to build our enemies back up. And, and we need to you know, have political reform, economic expansion, move the nation's attention westward. Um, and, then, and then cultural reintegration, which will take time moving toward a multiracial and majoritarian democracy, which is the thing had been fundamentally resisted. Um, but, but he is so farsighted. And, and, and where the book, you know, we, we may get there in the conversation, but where the book ends up going is that his vision ends up being vindicated in the wake of the Second World War. 
where we yeah. pursue a policy of un unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace, and it works. Well, some of the signs of uh, the fact that he did want a magnanimous peace is when he talks about uh, letting the Confederate president essentially leave the country. Be like, well, you know, <laughs> hopefully someone can just make sure he, he gets out because uh, he doesn't want to to execute him. Uh, but he also obviously can't just have him hanging around. And he tells his generals to let him up easy, let everyone go home, let them keep their horses, just want to have to give them back to their families, uh, which would be a very tough stance to to uh, hold on to after years and years of uh, of conflict. And then people all telling you that after you win, like, you know, we have to um, to punish the, the treasonous uh, rebels. So he presides over the, the end of a war that he had opportunities to end earlier, but not unconditionally. And so he's like, look, we need an unconditional surrender. Eventually, Robert E. Lee does capitulate and, and uh, surrenders. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Lincoln is assassinated very, very shortly thereafter. Uh, it, it, it seems like there is uh, there's no real opportunity even to celebrate the end of the war before people are cast into mourning. Yeah. That that's exactly right, and and the magnanimous peace that Lincoln had been uh, evangelizing for um, that seemed to be carrying the day. I mean, you know, he's assassinated five days after Lee surrendered Appomattox. The generous terms of which that Grant writes are basically terms that he had received from Lincoln in their detailed meetings. But you know, one of the things that happened was is that feeling of magnanimity. Uh, of 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 we must reunite the nation is immediately replaced by by a feeling of revenge. So Lincoln's martyrdom helps solidify the Union in some respect, but it also gets us back, ironically, off. Um, it, it it harms his legacy because we get off a path of magnanimity towards one of vengeance. Andrew Johnson is the worst possible person to take over for him, and um and and and, and where Lincoln had wanted the rank and file amnesty. Let them, you know, have their guns to shoot crows with and their horses to plow with. He, he, as you said, he, he wasn't going to make a martyr of, of Jefferson Davis and the Confederate leadership by hanging them, which is the traditional punishment for treason. But he also wasn't going to let the planter class and the people who should have known better, the members of Congress, the courts, the military, who, who joined the Confederacy. He wasn't going to give them amnesty right away. He wasn't going to let them get their power back because he knew that that would end up being a restoration of of the slave class, even in the absence of, of of slavery itself, due to the you know Thirteenth Amendment, which he passed before he died, um, which is a reminder, by the way, that even if rights are enshrined in the Constitution, they don't mean anything if they're not enforced. Um, you know, but but it just gets us off on precisely the wrong path and the opposite of what Lincoln wanted. But you know, one of the things he did understand: you want magnanimity, but you still need accountability for leadership to proceed reconciliation. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So he succeeded by Andrew Johnson, who seems positively Trumpian in the description. Yes. He's, he's like aggrieved, like all, all, all about him, 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 uh, like a bit of an alcoholic, it seems. 
Um, I, I I did not realize just what a terrible president uh, a- Andrew Johnson was. I I don't think. And as a result, uh, then there is something of a restoration of the Southern elite, um, and they uh, implement the black codes, uh, codifying yeah. ver- various uh, ways to make blacks uh, second class citizens uh, in the South. Uh, it probably contributes to the rise of the KKK, uh, which, which then uh, President Grant uh, is left to, to stamp out when he becomes president a few years later. Yeah, it, it's a really resonant story. I, I think actually the story of Reconstruction is one that our country needs to focus on a lot more for a bunch of different reasons. You're, you're right about about Johnson in particular. I was struck by a, a article about Johnson at the time uh, in the Atlantic Monthly, which uh, called him egotistic to the point of mental disease, uh, vain. And, and there were a scandal. number of lines that reminded me of Trump in the description. Yeah, I was no, like, no, this feels familiar. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the old Mark Twain line, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. But you're right, you know, Grant gets us back on the Lincoln path. He'd heard Lincoln's vision for how to win a peace consistently. And the most important thing he does as a president, I would argue, is when he goes to Congress personally to lobby for the passage of the uh, anti-KKK Enforcement Act, and then has that act enforced by a Southern attorney general. So it makes it impossible or more difficult for, for the members of the KKK to say they're suffering at the hands of Yankee you know, imperialism, you know, or the the Southern version of that. And again, they hold the leadership accountable, send them to uh, prison up in Albany, but, but, and it works. I mean, the first incarnation of the KKK is cut away, Um, but its goal was obviously to take advantage of a vacuum, to uh, use voter intimidation, violence, um, to reassert uh, white supremacy in the South uh, and, and snuff out that early, uh, early incidents of, of black leadership in the Republican party in the South. And, and it, it, you know, it's, it's no small irony to me that the Anti-KKK Enforcement Act is being cited uh, in some of the cases around both Charlottesville trial that's occurred re- and, and January 6th, um, that a lot of the laws that were put in place by the Civil War generation to deal with insurrection are now being dusted off and indeed were intended to be not simply backward looking, but forward looking. Um, but it's a reminder that we cannot take our gains for granted. One of the stats that's so chilling to me is that um, in 1900, because this took decades to take place, you know, Confederates sitting on the courts and, you know, you know, deprioritization of racial reconciliation. Um, that in eight, 1900, Alabama had 180,000 registered black voters. Three years later, it had 3,000. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's just chilling. And it's a reminder what you, we cannot take our gains for granted. You start writing this book four years ago. Uh, were you concerned about the possible disintegration of the country into like some new civil war at, at that point. And you were writing about uh, bringing the country back together in 2004. Polarization has gotten so much worse since then. Uh, your book, Washington's Farewell, is in large part about his warning against hyperpartisanship. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- this this book felt very, very relevant uh, in 2022. Thank you. you know? <laughs> and, and Thank so, you. Th- so were you concerned about some of the things we're seeing today in 2018 when you were even considering this book? Sure. Um, it's a reason that we should not only be wary, but actively resist tribal politics. We've seen how dangerous that is over and over again. And, you know, all my work, all my columns, and certainly all my books uh, are in different ways about the core issue of defending democracy overcoming hyperpartisanship and polarization, because I think that's the core problem facing us. Uh, and, and how to making a case for how to do that, particularly through through uh, the creation of a vital center and, and the leaders who've exemplified that from our past. Um, you know, my book in 2010 was called Wingnuts about, you know, how the lunatic fringe is hijacking America. That was a different approach. I was playing offense from the center, but saying, look, look at the extremes, look at the interplay of the extremes. When you hear you know, Glenn Beck, you got to, at the time, you need to understand the John Birch Society. Here's the history of this stuff. So this is stuff that I've, I've, I've written uh, about for a long time, but this is- it, It's funny most... how you're attacking it from different angles, man, but continue. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly, it's very intentional, you know, 100%. And, and part of the reason I went to history isn't only because I love history and I like writing, you know, you know, sort of, sort of the tactile literary history that I like to read. You know, you should always try to write the books you, you want to read. Um, but that we can talk about 
politics through the prism of our history and it gives us perspective on our problems and our politics. It's less polarizing. Whereas if I, you know, um, and hopefully you could reach different people by reminding them that actually, especially around the Tea Party, when people tried to misappropriate the founding fathers' legacies to their own ideological and political ends. And then you say, no, <laughs> let's look at what actually Washington's political last will and testament warned us against this, exactly this polarization. We need to focus on, on national unity and political moderation. Um, and, and then Lincoln, you know, 80 years later is, is defending our democracy, as he had said as a young man, as a nation of free men, we must live for all time or die by suicide. And he was dealing with the thing the Founding Fathers feared. And he was able to summon the right kind of leadership to, to help us uh, survive. And, and that's part of the hopeful thing about studying the Civil War, is that we've been through far worse before. You know, we need to have courage and we need to stop feeling so precious and, 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 and that we'll get over this. We'll get through this, but it's not going to simply happen on its own, particularly if we allow these larger forces to continue to divide us when it doesn't actually represent our true character as a nation. And, and um, that's one of the things that I think Lincoln's leadership, in addition to the example of reconciling leadership, which he basically invents, uh, can do for us today. Uh, so he winds up with Vice President Andrew Johnson, who ends up taking over and being a really subpar president, in part as like a <laughs> political uh, compromise slash unity uh, ticket. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was part of me that really applauded it when you first read about it. You're like, oh, yeah, unity ticket. Like he, he got in a Democrat. Uh, as his vice. You know, I mean, think about that, everyone. Republican president, vice president, uh, who's a Democrat. It's like, oh, you know, there they are. Um, but then it ends up biting the country in the ass when, uh, you know, yep. like Andrew Johnson winds up uh, becoming president. Uh, so so that, that was one thing that there, I mean, there were so many ingredients of, of this where I was like, wow, like unity ticket, third party candidate, like things that yeah. most Americans now today would find inconceivable. Well, I, you know, it's one of the reasons I love to talk to you about this book and giving you the book is that there's so many things that I wrote very intentionally that, you know, won't resonate the same way with everybody. But, you know, that that was, you know, you know, that was 100 percent one of the reasons why I focused on these things that get short shrift. Lincoln runs for reelection on a national union to unity ticket. It's the National Union yeah. Party, um, which makes a ton of sense during Civil War. And then also the fact that he ditches his vice president, you know, who's from Maine. Think about it, the time the Republican Party is trying to bridge the West and the Northeast. Right. So. But Hamlin's not really particularly involved in the war. And he's, he's, like, he's like hanging out in Maine. <laughs> yeah, he just hangs out in Maine. The vice, the vice presidents did not have a very defined role. Um, but then he says, look, you know, Andrew Johnson is the only Southerner in the Senate who refuses to secede with his state. And, and, you know, he's gotten rid of his slaves. And I want to show that we can have a national unity ticket. We're going to rebrand the Republican Party. And it'll be a north-south balance, Republican and Democrat, giving, you know, war Democrats permission to vote for this Republican ticket. And it's appropriate to a time of civil war. It's inspired. It's not only politically inspired, it's sort of, you know, it is inspired. But I think it becomes a cautionary tale, which is one of the reasons it hasn't happened before, because of the question of character. You know, there's never been a, a president assassinated before Abraham Lincoln. So he might, even though he's gotten death threats throughout the war, he might have not been adequately thinking of it. He may have placed too much emphasis on the fact they knew each other as young men in his one term in Congress. When Johnson shows up drunk to inauguration, Lincoln's pretty pissed and knows he's made a big mistake. But even the radical Republicans thought that Johnson would be a bigger ally than Lincoln. In fact, one of them, Benjamin Wade, said before Lincoln was assassinated, we hope that, you know, we, he said to Johnson, you know, sometimes I hope that Lincoln will be assassinated so you can lead us through Reconstruction because they thought Johnson would be more vengeful. What they, they didn't adequately appreciate is that Johnson wasn't a race warrior. He was a class warrior. He was driven by resentment towards the planter class. He was actually incredibly bigoted and, and he did everything he could to block the progress towards equal rights with a really vicious venom driven by his own resentments and insecurities and grievances. So I think the one of the reasons we haven't seen that is because this particular example blew up so badly in the country's face, as you say, that it provides a cautionary tale. If the character of Johnson had been better, if that were conceivably happen in the future time, it does not need to end the same way as long as uh, the character of the people involved are solid and they share true goals and values. In, in recent times, the closest we've come to it was the 
rumored pick of Joe Lieberman to be John McCain's running mate, um, which apparently was a mm-hmm. fairly serious consideration. Now he, uh, I can give you <laughs> want, want to have a little scoopage on that. Oh no, please, I'll, please. I'll give yeah. you some news on that. So, so I was there when that was being pushed and floated. So uh, as some of y'all might know, my political uh, history is, you know, I'm, I'm always an independent. I'm a centrist. I'm inspired by Bill Clinton's campaign for the presidency, the DLC recentering of the Democratic Party and um, uh, work on his 96 reelection, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, very, very low level. And then uh, Rudy Giuliani is running for reelection in New York, and he is a centrist sort of third way Republican. Urban Republicanism. Peter Beinart did a great cover story for the New Republic called "The New Progressives" about all these third-way mayors, and uh, and and some were you know Dick Reardon in L.A. Republican, Rudy Republican. Some were Democrats like Michael White in Cleveland, Steve Goldsmith in Indianapolis Republican, um, and it was exciting. So I I worked for for Rudy's uh, re-election as an advanced man, you know, and then ended up becoming his chief speechwriter before 9/11 and, and through 9/11 at the age of like 27, 28. Rudy runs for president in 08, and I go back briefly. I met my wife, um, and and Rudy was a very different guy than he is now. Um, In any case, so I'm there when McCain, who's his friend, is calling around gauging whether support, whether it'd be support for Lieberman. And uh, I happened to be with him, and um, he was having Lindsey Graham called in. And some people were freaking out because for them, the partisanship was the most important thing or the ideology. And uh, and it, it got sort of squelched because their feeling is there'd be a revolt because the right wing didn't like, you know, McCain enough to begin with, despite the fact that he was pretty conservative. He was too much of an iconoclast, a maverick. So that was that was, you know, that was a, a brief glimpse of what might have been. But basically, the party apparatus would never allow that, which is part of the problem in our politics. Right. That's why there wow. is a need to, to break up the polarization. So McCain, um, so, so it, McCain it, got the the opposite of the go ahead sign from uh, the party. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy didn't think it'd be a bad idea in particular, as I recall, but, but the people around him, people were, you know, there's a partisan economy that people underestimate in the most cynical economic sense. Yeah. People make money off polarization and party politics. It's a big business and it totally twists people's minds and they come up with all sorts of ornate excuses to rationalize it. But if you go outside, if the party nominee picks somebody outside their party, it short circuits everything. And I, I think, you know, you can argue that maybe the Johnson Lincoln example is, is, is a reason for it, but I guarantee you not any of them will think about that. Oh, no. <laughs> I time. mean, most of them probably aren't even aware of it. Plus, I mean, the, the problem there wasn't the unity thing. It's just that Andrew Johnson was the wrong guy. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. like you said, it's like if there's like a character problem, I don't know Joe Lieberman well, but he, he seems like a, a fine human um if yeah, you, were to, you could it, agree or disagree but that's not his issue yeah so it, i mean there are any number of high character republicans that i think a lot of democrats could look up and be like do i love mitt romney like maybe not like do i think mitt romney's a moral human like uh, i mean i happen to think mitt romney's a you know uh, yeah, a very moral guy and so um you know like that 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 would be the litmus test but i agree with you that there are very powerful incentives that keep you in one camp or another. I'll tell you a small story as a sign of this. Um, so I started the forward party, good times. And uh, and then even going to law firms and tech providers, uh, they actually specialize in either one party or the other. Um, and so then if you were a third party, they're like, well, we can't deal with you because then like our one party might be super mad at us. And that's where all of our bread is buttered. Yep. Yep. No. And, and, and you see this over and over again. Um, you know, th- these attempts to reinforce uh, conformity. It's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the, the people at the Lincoln Project, you know, who stood up, the Republicans who stood up against Donald Trump showed extraordinary courage yeah. um, because all the economic pressures, the political pressures, the social pressures that, that created the sense of conformity that would thereby allow people to twist what they allegedly believed in or abandon what they allegedly believed in solely for the sake of party unity or access to power or profit. These people didn't do that. And, and whatever you, th- you think about, the, you know, whether you agree or disagree with their politics, I think one of the things that you and I have talked about is to some extent, like defending democracy uh, against demagoguery is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a single issue litmus test, right? You're either in favor of democracy or you're going to find excuses for people who try to overturn democracy. And, and, and that is, uh, that, that's a, a very dangerous moment where we are as a country. But, you know, it, it, the fact that the two parties ignore the fact 
that a plurality of Americans are self-identified independents, that that number has doubled over the last 30 years, that they find ornate ways to ignore or excuse it or say it's not really a thing. They find ways to ignore the center of their own parties. I mean, in a rational political universe, Charlie Baker or Larry Hogan would be the most logical people in the world to run for president because they're blue state Republicans with 70% approval ratings. They don't even get looked at, thought about in any short list of Republicans uh, insiders because they, they commit the sin of being pro-choice or not radical enough on other issues. It, it's just, it fundamentally distorts our ability to think and reason together. And the rot is in the, the, the political extremes and their influence on the political establishment to the extent where there's now no difference between the two. Um, and I think Trump really exposed that for a lot of people, but you're exactly right. The partisan economy makes cowards of people. Yeah, all of the market incentives drive in one direction. Uh, I talked to a guy named Miles Taylor uh, the other yeah, day. Sure. Do you know Miles? He's anonymous. I know him well personally, but I know of him, certainly. Well, yeah, so uh, he shared his story about uh, leaving Trump world, and he got attacked for what seems to me to be a clear act of patriotism and principle. You know, like mm -hmm. you think somehow you get rewarded for, <laughs> for doing the right thing, and it, it, instead it's actually uh, you get the rug pulled out from under you uh, nine times out of ten and get mm -hmm. accused of really nefarious motives. And so Miles and I had a laugh about it where he was like, you know, like all of my economic incentives were to do the opposite of what I did. Yep. Yep. And and it's, it, I'm working on a piece right now um, uh, that'll be, uh, you know, called, uh, called, you know, how Ukraine broke the cult of Trump. And I was very resistant to call Trumpism a cult. Uh, wait, 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 you were writing a new book. Sorry. Is this like no, 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 no. It's going <laughs> to be a column. It's going to be an essay. A column. Long. Okay. Okay. But, but, but here's the point, you know, Steve Hassan and other people, and I, I did this digital series on CNN called, you know, reality check, you know, and I, I've been focusing on extremism. And one of the things I've shown it over and over again, interviewing people who've left cults, first of all, that the way to get people out of a cult is through empathy the exact process that you and I've, I've talked about. You need to separate them from the day-to-day -day ecosystem, listen non-judgmentally, don't attack their belief system, have them talk about their, uh, their values that they believe they back up, and then have them realize on their own uh, through usually a third-party example that there is, um, that they, that the, the people they've been following have not been living up to the values that they hold dear. And the problem with this process is it's not particularly scalable. Um, there's another thing that cults do, uh, which is they, they, they disproportionately punish heretics. They make examples for people who leave the cult. Why? The reason is, is because that's the only way to reinforce group cohesion through fear and greed, but also because the people who leave the cult are the people who are most dangerous to the cult because they have credibility with the other members. So the other members have to be taught that this person is to be shunned and cast out, that there is something shameful about them. That dynamic is, is almost written into human nature. It goes back centuries when you study cults or any of these groups. And, and that's why the, the people who break away and start speaking their truth need to be held up because they're speaking their truth, but they're so threatening to the group cohesion. And sometimes that group cohesion itself is cynical because it's really just based upon a foundation of fear and greed, but those impulses can be extraordinarily powerful. Um, oh. So, Long way of saying those are the people you, you want to you want to hold up and admire. Yeah, one of the great mysteries to me is why more moderate Democrats haven't gotten behind the Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's of the world, who are like the principled Republicans who voted for impeachment. And it's just because there's an R next to them. Peter Meyer, uh, you know, it's like some of these people have literally had threats against their their lives, uh, and they're trying to do the right thing. And instead of being elevated and supported in the way you're describing, they're kind of like left out to uh, to, to uh, kind of bear the brunt of what's going on with uh, their own party. So so it's interesting. I, I bet like McCain at the end of his life, it, Kinzinger certainly. And again, it's a good example of this. You know, the, the only issue that ultimately matters is whether, whether you're willing to defend democracy. These people are doing the right thing yeah. at the most difficult and critical time. And it's not a question of who, who will look good in the eyes of history. Like I'll tell you right now, that's, that's not a tough call. Kinzinger's and Cheney's are absolutely heroes because of what they're doing. And, um, and whether you agree with their politics on policy level or not, it's really irrelevant. 
What I think you'll find is their donations and their public support is probably much higher among Democrats than you'd expect, maybe even 50-50, and their support among Republicans has decreased. The problem is that that's a political vulnerability, particularly in redistricting. And this gets to the heart of what I think you're getting at. Instead of when Republicans in, in, Repub in Democratic state, when Democrats in states like Illinois, which are Democratic states, are doing redistricting, or New York, you know, <laughs> you'd probably, if you were thinking for the good of the country, is 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 not find not try to screw Adam Kinzinger or John Katko, you know, uh, you know go go for you know if you want to make someone's district district more difficult, take take somebody who um, it, like an Elise Stefanik, I'll use as an example, uh, and 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 make their district slightly more democratic, so they actually have an incentive to try to reach out and not simply play to the base. And instead, what they did is. They, they exerted political pressure on Kinzinger and Katko even before the maps were completed. So they just decided not to run again. Yeah, which um, is a huge loss in my opinion. It's a huge loss. It's it's so short-sighted. It's it's actually very cynical because it, re, it reinforces this sort of moral equivalence. And um, and and it, it is, you know, I hope they stay active in politics in particular Kinzinger. I'm, I'm fairly confident he will in some way. And he certainly should. Those people who had the courage to stand up I mean, if, if, if an attempt to overturn an election on the basis of a lie and attacking our capitalism clarifying to you is what the hell is. And I think that's that's what's, I think, truly troubling about our times. I'm, I'm going to share a personal story, John, that I'm not sure Please. I shared. Uh, so uh, I... Uh, left the Democratic Party on October 4th. And I was stunned at how mad people seemed. <laughs> like, I, I, I didn't think it was going to be that much of a, a deal. Like I, I kind of, uh, so, you know, I, I filed the paperwork and was like, oh, you know, if I'm starting the Ford Party, I should break up with the Democratic Party. And then I was like, okay, I'll do, I'll post a social media video. I'll write a blog post and, and uh, I'll put those out in the world like the, um, you know, the day before the forward party gets announced. And wow, was that like much more of a, you know, a topic for discussion and like being accused of all sorts of very negative things. And mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, guys. And, and part of me was a little bit like, hey, guys, like, you know, I'm still the same person and American, like, you know, like I haven't suddenly become a, a different person, the, though, two things did happen after that. Like one was like the venom that was directed towards me, you know, like as a human being, you do notice it. You're like, huh, <laughs> like that, like that, that seems a little much for someone who, you know, like I, I think is in like demonstrated goodwill towards most people and like, you know, trying, trying to make positive things happen for the country. Um, but the second thing that happened too, is that I didn't realize myself how just taking off a party hat actually does uh, influence your thinking. Like I, I thought that, as someone who'd been a Democrat for, you know, 20 plus years, you know, I was like thinking uh, very much for myself that whole time. Um, but uh, I will say that, you know, like just taking that piece of paper and filing it and saying independent, like all, all of a sudden my take on things did shift in part because when Democrats were saying and doing things, I didn't uh, associate myself with them necessarily. Like it, it wasn't necessarily my team anymore. And so you, you'd actually interpret actions and statements differently. I think it's such a, a profound point. I mean, what surprised you? Was it was it that you feel that people felt betrayed because you'd run for office as, as a Democrat or your base was maybe more self-identified progressive than it seemed? Because you're to your point, you're the same person. You always have fundamentally uniting rhetoric and you've always talked about reforming a system in a way that's beyond partisan politics. That's never been your lens. Um, so what, what, what did that come from? Just a tribal sense of betrayal or, or, or what? Well, I, I think if you're trained to see the world as black and white uh, or good and bad, and then if someone takes off the team jersey, then uh, you're just going to think that they're joining the other team because you can't imagine a world where there aren't just two teams. Um, and, and so those were the primary accusations I seemed to get, John. It was like, you're going to be a Republican, you know, like, uh, you know, next week or like or you're a narcissist. You're like doing it. And I just I thought to myself, it's like, again, this stuff like no one declares political independence as a path to, you know, glory and power. <laughs> no, it's the exact opposite, right? 
you know, people people make compromises in pursuit of power by joining a team. And then all of a sudden, if you see quickly, it becomes party over country. It, it, so it, it was very surprising. You know, like I looked at it, it, it was it was very hard not to be struck by it. Um, but it speaks to what you were saying before, is that there are these false economies. Uh, and uh, one way they maintain cohesion is by uh, casting out anyone who like kind of, you know, publicly leaves or questions the orthodoxy. Yeah. And I think Lincoln's example shows us that there are different ways to lead. And there have been examples of successful third parties in the past and highly specific circumstances. And one of the things you've said about the forward party, and I, I happen to agree with the principles you have, particularly around redistricting reform, open primaries, ranked choice voting, um, because I think you need to change the incentive structures around our politics, and then you'll yeah. have a politics that actually rewards problem solving and reflects our real, our, our real values as a country and our underlying character. Um, is that, you know, you don't necessarily need to leave your party to, to associate with forward. One of the things that fascinates me is the way that the parties try to diminish that simple declaration of independence, not only by closing off political uh, you know, pathways superficially, despite the fact that most, you know, 85% of mayorality in the country are, open, are nonpartisan elections, open primaries, which is what it should be, particularly for that office. Um, but the way they try to diminish independence by saying, you know, you can't, you know, in some states, you can't be an independent, you're a decline to state, you're a blank, right? Yeah. <laughs> they try to, they try to, the, the, the fundamental, we should all be thinking as the founding fathers wished, uh, way beyond party label, you know, it, it, and, and the party labels can be helpful at certain times. I want to reiterate, you know, we have asymmetric polarization right now. There's, you know, I'm, 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 I think it's important to understand the interplay between the extremes and people's psychology, but let's not kid ourselves about which party is more extremist when it comes to um, co members of Congress and, and the incentive structures right now. But that, that pendulum could easily swing the other way over time. Uh, and, and you want to understand the loop, but we, if you care about actually breaking this cycle of vengeance and violence, which is what Lincoln was about, then you need to approach politics a different way. And, and, and you need to think about the politics, the golden rule, you know, treat other people as you would like to be treated. And that's the core value that Lincoln brought to his politics. That is the, that is the flow through because his politics don't neatly line up with ideologies today. Certainly not with party labels, got nothing to do with you know, that, that, that at all. So, he, he, so that's where I think Lincoln becomes a leader for 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 reformers and reconcilers. Uh, he truly was a, a leader for the ages. Uh, and reading your book made me appreciate it anew. Uh, you know, I remembered some of it, but a lot of it was new. It's a really important work and incredibly relevant for today. Um, my my last question for you is actually something that that's that you and I are sharing. Um, so you're going to be hosting the Fair Vote Awards first ever on uh, April 11th in New York. Uh, I'm going to be there. How the heck did you link up with FairVote? I get the sense that you also got there before uh, I did or before a lot of us uh, because you've been on this train for, for a while. And for those of you who don't know, FairVote is, is a nonprofit that has been uh, championing ranked choice voting for years and years now. Well, an election reform writ large. I mean, I've been writing about um, th these issues as a columnist, going back to when I began as a columnist in 2002, I was always an independent. I've never been a Republican. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and I've always been really focused on these issues of political reform and, and opening open primaries and redistricting reform because we want representative democracy. You have representative democracy, you get more representative results. And, and, and this, the way the system's been rigged by the extremes, you know, I just, you can see this coming. Everything flows from these fundamental problems. We've been talking about hyper-partisanship and polarization. So the people working to change the rules, to change the game, are people I've, I've, I've interviewed with. I've talked about the policies. I've talked about the history of the policies. Kurt Novoselic, the, um, uh, the former uh, bass player for Nirvana, actually was uh, the honorary co-chair of, of Fair Vote for years and had a great experience of seeing the movie Lincoln with him, actually, and his wife, and then going out for Guinness afterwards, which was a memorable night. Uh, but so, yeah, I've, I've followed what Fair Vote and, and, and other associate groups have done, been a big supporter of their efforts because I agree with it as a matter of principle. And one of the blessed things about being a columnist, particularly, you know, before I was editor in chief and different roles I played, you know, you, you get to you get to talk about what, what you care about. And one of my rules, I think, because I had a background in government is I was always interested in I'm not gonna. I, I, I want to focus on solutions. 
not just focus yep. on problems. Yep. And and so the people who are putting forward solutions, I want to highlight them and talk about them and elevate them. And Fairvote's been doing that as early as anyone. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. And and you richly deserve to be on that dais with Catherine Murdoch and some other fun folks. Yeah, we're gonna have a great time that night, uh, John Amlon. I've learned a lot from you. You are oh, much further along this curve than just about anyone. Uh, and, and I feel like you're like this stealth voice of moderation and reason and reform all rolled into one. And most people don't even realize it because you're so good looking. Congratulations <laughs> on Lincoln and the fight for peace. Uh, such a great read, super relevant for uh, today's era. And thank you, my friend, for being here. It's great sharing oh, this time with you. My friend, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And the last hour has been uh, no exception. I look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. Yep. Have a great time with the family. I'll see you at the Fairboat <laughs> right, Awards man. at the latest. You got it. All right, man. Be well. Take Bye, care. John.